Gresham College presents Escher and Coxeter, a mathematical conversation by Professor Sarah Hart. Thank you very much for inviting me today. Um, it's a real honour for me to speak to a Gresham audience. Uh, I have been attending Gresham lectures myself since I was at school over at the girls' school just down the road. And uh, when I was there, Christopher Zeman was the Gresham Professor of Geometry and he gave some really interesting and fun lectures and I, you know, I've remembered some of what he said ever since then. So it's, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be speaking to you. Um, so today I'm going to talk to you about Escher and Coxeter. So Escher, uh, the artist, Coxeter, mathematician. Um, some of you will have heard of one or both of those, but hopefully by the end of this hour you will know about the conversation that they had, which was ongoing over, over decades, following a meeting in 1954. So I'm going to begin by talking about Escher a little bit. So this is a picture, self-portrait that he did in 1935, um, hand with reflecting sphere. And from this picture, you can already tell that he is good at geometry, right? Because he's produced this amazing, amazing uh, diagram or, or picture. Here's a sphere and here's his face reflected in it. So he's already got to do one kind of reflection in a sphere, but also it's a lithograph. So that means that you draw your picture on essentially stone, but then you print from it. So it's another mirror image that you've got to factor in. And to get all the geometry right of that, uh, even if that's just an instinctive understanding of geometry, tells us already, here is someone who, who knows what they're about. And of course, the technical uh, ability to produce a picture like that is extremely impressive. Um, so Escher was born in 1898, 17th of June, so we're nearly, it's nearly his birthday, uh, in uh, Leeuwarden in Holland. But when he was five, the family moved to Arnhem, and uh, he, that's where he grew up and had his early education. Thinking about you know, what made Escher go into the, the life of, of art that he went into, um, his father had been a, or was a civil engineer and visited Japan and brought home some woodcuts. So we all know about Japanese woodcuts and some of those perhaps were hanging in the family home and may have inspired Escher to uh, make his own woodcuts. So that's one possibility or one, one part of the mix. His five, uh, he was one of five brothers and all his older brothers became scientists. So there was a clear sort of technical bent in the family. Um, he said that he had only escaped by a hair's breadth becoming a useful member of society. Um, because in 1919, he went to the School of Architecture and Decorative Arts in Harlem, initially planning to become an architect, trained to be an architect, but he was drawn into the world of art. Of course, as a pure mathematician, uh, I, I'm much in favour of uh, thinking of creative activities as being a useful member of society, so I don't quite agree with his verdict upon himself. Um, so he, he soon got drawn into the decorative arts, and this is an early picture of his, uh, a woodcut of a white cat, which is very charming. This is made in 1919. Um, so at Harlem, he learned a lot of the, and refined a lot of the technical skills that he would later put to good use, um, woodcuts, etchings, things like this. After that, he went on in 1922, a tour of Italy and Spain, and he was making landscape uh, pictures. So you can see on the left there, a woodcut of San Gimignano, which I'm probably familiar with this, this amazing story of human nature in San Gimignano that they had a rule um, that you couldn't sort of put yourself above God. You couldn't say, I'm better than God. So that the, the height of any tower that you built could not exceed the height of the church tower. So what people did with their <laughs> typical human nature is to just build two towers and then <laughs> the total height, if, you, if they weren't up for each other, which of course you would never do, would be, would be greater than the church, uh, height of the church. So they got around this restriction and still managed to show off that there we are, there's human nature for you. Um, so he made these, these lots of woodcuts of, uh, and lithographs as well in the later 20s, starting of locations around Italy and Spain. And these are, you know, very pleasant designs and intricately worked. And you know, he, he was starting to get a bit of a following. He had his first exhibition in 1924 uh, of, these, of these landscapes. Um, if that was what he had done for the rest of his career, we wouldn't be here today talking about him. I mean, somebody might, but I wouldn't be, because what I want to tell you about is what happened after 1936. So in 1936, something happened. And as a result of that, his work changed. Now, I don't need to describe really what happened too much because he's very kindly helped us out by giving us a picture of 
the metamorphosis studies work went through. So you just saw uh, before a tranty, uh, and it, here it is again at the start of metamorphosis, which was a 1937 woodcut. Um, and you can see that it starts off being a landscape, and then it sort of changes, starts to change. And these buildings turn into kind of regular cubes, which then become hexagons that are you know, making a tessellation of the plane. And then they slightly begin to change their shape until you have a figure here that again could cover, tessellate the whole plane. So he's gone from, as he himself said, he went from landscapes to mindscapes. Things became more abstract, and he started experimenting with these, with these tilings, periodic tilings of the plane. And there was another direction he went in as well, which we won't talk about really today, which is playing around with perspective and some of the uh, pictures he created, which are sort of impossible things, waterfalls and relativity, where stairs are seeming to go upwards as well as downwards, and those kind of things. That was another avenue. But today we'll be going to be focusing on more on these kind of regular periodic tilings that he created with different images. So what happened in 1936? Well, he went back to somewhere he'd visited back in 22 for the first time, but he spent a lot longer there. And that amazing place was the Alhambra Palace. So here is a wall of the Alhambra Palace to illustrate the kind of decoration that, that is there. Um, so this is uh, in Granada in Spain, and it's an example of Moorish art. So there was a building there, a fortress from the late 9th century, but the buildings that are there today and that people go and see um, were completed in the, the mid-11th century uh, by the Moorish king Mohammed ben al-Ahmed. And as you can see, uh, there's a lot of decorative work like this, tiled walls in the palace, many different kinds of symmetry are available to see. You can see some of the symmetry in this, in this design. So these, for example, if you look at the blue diagonal uh, patterns there, you can imagine just shifting that on a whole step to the right. So it's got a kind of translational repetition, so a translation symmetry, but also other symmetries like you could rotate around one of these points here where the three curved tiles meet. And so it has, there's a lot going on in that, in that design. Escher was really struck by these designs and he, he took sketches of several of them and he tried to work out what all the different possibilities were. Um, and so here, he, Escher, was not constrained by one important restriction that the uh, Moorish artists had. So there's a prohibition in, in Islamic art uh, of depicting living things. So you can't have the little figures that Escher had, and later on we'll see some designs of his. Um, and that is one reason, perhaps, why these uh, repeating tilings and designs feature so much of the geometry, uh, because you, know, you can't have a Roman mosaic with the gods sitting around eating grapes. <laughs> that wouldn't be allowed. So what are you going to put on your walls? Well, uh, a decorative design like this is, is one possibility. So, okay, so Escher spent a lot, long time in 1936 taking sketches at the Alhambra Palace, and then later he was working through some of these and trying to make different designs based on some of the possibilities he'd seen. And he does not have this prohibition on representing living things, so he can, well, I talk, say living things. Um, angels and devils is, is this picture. This was made in 1941, so these certainly are, they are living things in some sense. Um, so here we are, we see an interlocking design uh, with two kinds of tiles. So here's, that's an upside down angel. Uh, but there's a, there's a right way up one there. And then you can see interlocking with them, um, there are these devils. So it's sort of a clever design because it's got opposites in it. Black and white, this is an ink uh, drawing rather than a woodcut. Um, but you can see with this that you could, in principle, extend it to cover the whole plane, right? I mean, you have to, we have a finite piece of paper, but you could, in principle, extend it. So, and, and it repeats itself, so it, it's periodic. So this is an example of a periodic tiling, uh, call it, um, or tessellation. Escher called the, what we might refer to as tiles, he called these motifs. So we have two motifs that are fitting just perfectly together, they're not overlapping, and they could fill the whole plane and extend forever. And this is the kind of design that Escher uh, produced lots of variations of and did lots of work with. Um, so this is what he started to produce. Now, he wanted to know, and perhaps we do too, are there lots of different ways we can produce tilings like this? So, of course, you know, this particular design features those exact shapes, angels and devils <laughs> fitting together, and you're limited really only by your imagination into uh, 
into what you can put on your tiles. But underlying this design is a sort of squareness, you can see. Uh, if you look at the places where the wings are meeting, the angels and devils, that makes a kind of square grid. So this, underlying this, there's a square grid. And that's an example of what we call a regular tiling, where, you're, where your tiles, you have, just have one kind of tile, in this case, squares. And we'll discuss these in a, in a moment, but there aren't very many possibilities uh, for, for the ways in which these structures can, can be made up. So the actual designs, obviously, as many as you like, only limited by your imagination, but the ways they can fit together mathematically is only a few possibilities. So let's discuss that briefly for a few minutes. Um, so what I'm talking about, the underlying squareness that I talked about in the 1941 picture, Angels and Devils, is an example of a regular tiling of the plane. So to tell us what that means. Well, uh, there's a word, a phrase in there that we haven't necessarily got a clear definition of at the moment, but a regular tiling is one which, so it could cover the whole plane, it's a repeating uh, design, a periodic design, with just one shape of tile. And that one shape of tile that you're allowed to use um, has to be a regular polygon to be discussed in a second. And you've got, it's got to always have the same sort of layout at every stage. So meeting at any point, the same number of these tiles. So what is a regular polygon? Let's be sort of get this clear. I'm sure this is a Gresham audience. I'm sure you've all heard of regular polygons and probably have a good feel for what they might be. Here are some. So an equilateral triangle, a square, a regular pentagon, a regular hexagon. When you're doing mathematics and you're trying to understand or make you know, deductions and proofs, you have to, the first thing you have to get right, really, is the definition of the thing you're talking about. And I just like to give an indication of, of what one does. Here, we're going to do, try and define a regular polygon. So what have we, all these got in common? Well, I mean, the, the, perhaps a first guess is to say, well, the, these are shapes where all the edges have the same length, right? So this is not just any old pentagon, it's one where all the edges have the same length. So let's, let's make ourselves a definition of these things, just as a little aside. So a regular polygon, let's, the first, first thing you might say, it's a shape, okay? Here's a shape, that's not a regular polygon. That's, that's Thomas Gresham in the Temple of British Worthies at Stowe. What a wonderful expression that is. He is a British worthy, as I'm sure we'd all agree. He is a shape, but he's not a regular polygon. Sorry, Thomas Gresham, you are three-dimensional, you're out straight away. Let's make it have to be on, lying on the plane, okay? Otherwise, we're, we're doomed. So, a planar shape. Okay, right, you're gone. Okay, here's a planar shape. Clearly, again, that's a stupid suggestion. Um, that's like an amoeba or something. That's clearly not a regular polygon. We must have edges that are straight. So, let's make, let's add a bit. It's got to have uh, straight edges, Okay, so let's make a shape with straight edges. It's not going to be a regular polygon yet. Here's one. Okay, so we're getting a bit closer. That's more in the right ballpark. Here is a, it's, it's a polygon now, is what we might think of as a polygon, but it's not what, one of those things that we drew earlier. Let's, let's insist that this has got edges of all different lengths. Let's make the edges all the same length. The reason we might be interested in doing this, apart from to define a regular tiling, is because if we're interested in symmetry, Imagine you know, a symmetry of a shape is something that leaves it looking the same. Um, so it got to map edges to edges, it's got to send it more edges to different edges, and it's got to send an edge of a given length to another edge of a given length. So you can maximize the symmetry by having the edges the same, the same length. Okay, so let's require all edges to be equal length. Okay, are we there yet? Um, well, let's see. Let's see what I can. Ah, oh, okay, ah. Oh. Right, not quite, not quite. So this is a parallelogram where, well, it's a rhombus, isn't it? All the edges are the same length, but we're still, it's fallen over a bit. It's drooped a bit, so we need to make it be square, literally. Um, we need to specify something more, and that's all the angle should be the same. So once we do that, all internal angles should be equal. Now what have we got? We're surely there, right? We, that's that's going to give us what we need. Ah, ah, still not quite there. Um, so it's quite, a, even something like a regular polygon, you have to be quite careful about what your definition is. Um, so this nice shape, it's a, very, it's a pleasing thing, but it's not what, what we want to be, one of our list of regular polygons. Um, this does have equal edges and the internal angles are all equal. So we need to eliminate this from our list somehow. And the way we do it is to introduce the word convex. So a convex shape has the property that any two points inside it, if you join them, the straight line, that straight line should be contained within the shape. And that does it for us. So. That's what a regular polygon is now. It's a convex planar shape. 
straight edges, all equal, and all the angles are equal. And that there is what a regular hexagon. Okay, so it's just a bit of an aside because it's one of those things where I expect we thought we knew what a regular polygon was, then we were took a while to decide, and then at the end of all that, it was what we thought it was all along. Well, that's, sometimes that's what you have to do. Um, okay, so now we really know what a regular tiling is because we know what a regular polygon is. So these are shapes made with straight edges, all the edges and all the angles are equal. And we're going to try and fit them together in such a way that we have always the same number of these things around each point. Um, okay, so that's what a regular tiling is. So we're only interested in having one shape of tile. So we can perhaps think about examples of these things. We've already talked about kind of a square tiling with squares. What are the other possibilities? Well, what we have to try and do is to fit together these things such that there are no gaps and there's no overlapping shapes. Um, so we, can, the, can we work out all the possible ways of doing this? How many possibilities are there? Well, we can perhaps experiment a bit and we can see, yes, you can fit four squares around a point and that pattern can continue. So a square tiling will work. Um, but for example, with pentagons, with regular pentagons, you can't do it because the internal angle of a regular pentagon is 108, 108 degrees. And three of those, three times 108 is something less than 360, right? So you can't fit, if you put three, you tried to put three around a point, um, you'd get a gap. So let's add another one in, but then you've gone too far because four lots of 108 is too big. You've overshot and you've now got an overlapping thing. So you can't fit a whole number of pentagons round a point. So you're doomed with regular pentagons. However, the other three uh, polygons there on that diagram do work and they do give you regular tilings, which we can look at on the next slide. Um, so here we see a tiling with squares, four squares round each point, and then there's one with equilateral triangles, six of those round each point, and then there's the honeycomb tiling of three regular hexagons round each point. Any, any n gone, n stands for the number of sides, with more than six sides, so a regular heptagon, a regular octagon, you can't do it because uh, to try, try to wrap them round a point. There's 360 degrees round a point. Uh, and so say with you know, heptagons, the internal angle of a heptagon is bigger than 120 degrees. And so two isn't enough and three is too many. And that's the same with all of those n gons for larger values of n. Uh, so those are really the only three you can do. We have a bit of uh, notation. You might think, what's the point? We've only got three of these. Well, th there'll be others later on, not on the plane, though. So we write that this as a kn tiling, where there are k tiles, and each of which is an n-gon um, at each point. So this guy here is a 4-4 four, four tiling, four, four gons, four squares. This one has six uh, three gons, six equilateral triangles, so that's a 6-3. And this other one with three regular hexagons is a 3-6 tiling. So those are the possibilities on the plane. Um, now, so that number three is what we need to remember, three regular tilings of the plane. Before we move on and think about, well, is there anything else you can do, any other kinds of geometry, um, I expect there will be people in the audience who are thinking, what about the 17 wallpaper patterns of which I have heard tell? Uh, <laughs> so you do hear this so this thing about there are 17 wallpaper patterns if you've never heard of that don't worry about it if you have then you'll be thinking hang on a minute what about those um, so we've talked about regular tilings and underneath every periodic tiling tiling that repeats itself so the angels and devils and anything else will be one of these regular tilings because there's got to be a bit that repeats itself and the shape of that will tell you what the underlying regular tiling is but if you start to think, well, what are the, all the possibilities with any kinds of tile, as long as I have a repeating a periodic design, um, then there are some more possibilities. Um, however, still not infinitely many. So if you try to understand, you know, when you factor in other symmetries that you might be able to include and different shapes of tiles and categorize those, those possible sets of symmetries, and sets of symmetries are called groups, um, then... There are, there's a bit more complication to it, but still there are only 17 possibilities. We'll just stick to the regular ones because underlying any periodic tiling is a regular tiling. Um, I put this picture up. It's perhaps not the most beautiful picture of uh, the 17 wallpaper patterns, but it, it's up there for a reason. And it's because of this, you, I'm likely to be able to actually see what this says, 
But this says um, it's got the word crystal symmetry in, right? And this is a diagram uh, from a book, an article by Polya. Um, in 1924, he classified all the possible kinds of symmetries or collections of symmetries you can get when you have a periodic tiling of the plane. And his interest, or the reason for doing this, was because crystallographers were trying to understand you know, how crystals are made and, and what the different possibilities are for those. And you know, since crystals are made of repeating uh, designs of molecules or layouts of molecules, this is very important for crystallographers. Um, now, what's that got to do with Escher? Well, when Escher had seen, he'd been to the Alhambra, he'd started to make some designs, he showed some of them to his big brother, uh, Berndt. And Berndt happened to be a professor of geology. And as soon as Berndt looked at these tilings, he said, oh, that's a bit like what the crystallographer guys are doing with their crystals. So he, he sent Escher um, a, a list of recommendations, and including this uh, paper, about periodic tilings and you know this was really useful to Escher to understand that there are 17 of these things because at the Alhambra Palace well there, there are arguments about how many of these 17 appear at the Alhambra Palace is it 13 is it 12 is it 14 there are some disagreements but certainly we don't think all of them are there and certainly there isn't a nice here here's an information leaflet with all the 17 so this is really useful to Escher um, unbeknownst to Polya by the way uh, who did this in 1924 um, in 1891, Fedorov, a guy called Fedorov, had independently classified these patterns, but uh, Polly didn't know about that. Another thing that, that uh, Berndt sent to Escher was a description by, by Haag of what a periodic tiling and what a regular tiling actually are. So he had a clear definition, he had the 17 possibilities, so he was able to take this a bit further. But as I say, underlying each of these 17 and any periodic design is one of the three regular tilings. You can have a square, uh, you can have triangles or hexagons. So, okay, this is all good. So far, so good. Um, but what Escher wanted to do, really, he wanted to explore all the possibilities, but he also was slightly frustrated by the limitations that there were. So there are only three regular tilings. And um, when you produce one of these diagrams, and beautiful though they are, they do hint at infinity because, in principle, you could extend this thing. Um, to cover the whole plane, but they don't show you it. They don't show you the full infinite design, because they can't, on, on a finite piece of paper. So he was sort of frustrated by that limitation. He wanted to be able to, could I, you know, he'd love, love to be able to see the whole thing. And also, there's only these three possibilities. So are there any other geometries in the universe that, that we could work on? So he, he wondered about this. And of course, well, we live on a sphere, right? So a natural question is potentially to say, what can we do on the sphere? Uh, is there anything that's, that's different or ways of tiling the surface of a sphere? Um, which, you know, it is sort of a two-dimensional thing. You can tell that because you only need two coordinates to pinpoint where you are, latitude and longitude. Um, but it's a curved surface. So is there anything different going on? Well, we can tile the sphere with regular polygons. Um, of course, we have to... Bear in mind, this is a curved surface, and we've got our polygons that are planar figures. So what you do is um, you start with flat tiles. So you start with, say, square tiles, and you start trying to fit them together. But now your aim is not to have a flat surface, but to have one that you know, comes back in on itself and joins up so that it creates not necessarily a spherical shape, but a closed shape in three dimensions. And then you can just blow it up like a balloon, right? And that, that's roughly the process, um, missing out a bit of algebra, and you get yourself a tiling of the sphere. So you start with, say, squares, as I said, and you try and fit them round. So let's have three squares, one, two, three. Obviously, if you're trying to do the plane, you'd have a fourth square there and you'd be done. But let's not do that. Let's wrap those round to make a corner. And you've got three squares meeting at a corner. And then you keep going, and you find you can make a closed shape, which will actually be a cube. Then once you've got that closed shape, as I say, you just blow it up like a balloon and that gives you a tiling. So you can again ask the question, what are the possibilities? And again, it's just a, a you know, pure matter of adding up angles and trying to understand what, what are the possibilities. So if we have tried to do this with, say, equilateral triangles, well, if you have three equilateral triangles um, coming around a point, you can bend those together and make a corner and keep going. Um, or four or five, all of those work. 
Um, you need to try and make sure this is, a, this is a regular thing. So at each point, you've got the same number of tiles meeting. So once you've got your recipe, okay, I will have three equilateral triangles meeting at each point. Well, there you make your little corner there. And then you know you've got to have three meeting at the next vertex. So you just do that. And if it all comes together nicely, then you're happy. Um, and it does come together nicely in five uh, ways. And this is exactly corresponding to the five platonic solids, which you know, had been known to Euclid, for example. Um, but these things, each of these correspond to a tiling of the sphere. Because as I say, you get one of these and then you just sort of blow it up so that, it, so that you get curved tiles that fit on the sphere. So there are your five possibilities. So your, for example, the uh, five, three, that means five equilateral triangles meeting at a point. That's an icosahedron tiling. So you've got the tetrahedron, octahedron, icosa, 20 uh, triangles, icosahedron, cube. So that's a three squares, three, four, and dodecahedron. So you can do a tiling with pentagons on the sphere. So there are five possibilities here. So that's more, so five is bigger than three. So that's, you know, it's nice. Um, and Escher did produce uh, some designs on the sphere. So this is an example. This is now a second geometry. Keep count of how many geometries we're seeing this in. This is the second version of Angels and Devils. We've seen it on the plane and now we've seen it on a sphere. This is done in 1942. And underlying this is a cube uh, tiling, cubic tiling. And this is a you know, beautiful piece of work, which is pleasing to look at. But Escher still felt, and we might too, that there are some limitations here. Yes, you've got the whole design, but because you're on a finite sphere and all the tiles are you know, the same size, you can only ever get finitely many on your sphere. So somehow, all that, yes, all right, it sort of goes on forever because it comes back to where it started and you can carry on going. But it's not really um, showing an infinite design. And there are still only five possibilities. Five is better than three, but it's not, not a huge number. So he didn't do very much with spheres. And somehow he was still a bit stuck by this point um, because, you know, he, he, he hasn't got very many possibilities. And he, can carry, he carries on exploring, of course, and producing lots and lots of regular, sorry, periodic uh, tilings of the plane with beautiful designs. But, you know, he, he's working on this for a good few more years. By 1954, which we're about to get to, he's been producing periodic tilings, these designs, for several, you know, over a decade, and he's kind of getting to the end of what he feels he wants to achieve with those. And he still has these two restrictions that he isn't you know, quite satisfied with. So at this point, Escher's, uh, he's, he's been doing periodic tilings for, you know, 15 years or something. Um, and he's a bit stuck and he's, you know, a bit frustrated by, there's nowhere else to go. So let's now bring in uh, Coxeter. So this is Donald Coxeter. Um, he was born on the 9th of February, uh, 1907. So I have a friend who's here today whose little boy was born on the 9th of February, 2007. I'm sure she was pleased that it was Coxeter's centenary um, on that day. Um, so here's Coxeter when he was a young boy. Um, he had always liked mathematics, particularly geometry and music as well. And often those things go together, maths and music. Um, he, he liked you. Oh, sorry, I'm pointing later at someone in the audience. I apologise. <laughs> um, so here he is working. I don't know what he's doing on this day, but he certainly liked geometry so much that he was actually getting distracted from his schoolwork. And his tutor said to him, listen, you're only allowed to think in the fourth dimension on Sundays. So <laughs> since it's a Monday, we, we will not think in the fourth dimension today. But he did. And um, he went on to become a you know, a very eminent mathematician and geometer, but the, the preeminent geometer of the 20th century, even you know, during times when geometry perhaps wasn't as fashionable as it had been, especially yeah. his kind of geometry, which is the best kind. <laughs> you think about symmetry and uh, patterns and shapes and uh, you know, the analogues. So he did a lot of work on taking the analogues of polygons and polyhedra into higher dimensions and understanding what the symmetries of those were. Um, oh, just incidentally, his full name was let me get this right, Harold Scott MacDonald Coxeter. So the Donald was the second half of the last of his three forenames. That's plenty for anyone. Um, when he was born, they were going to call him uh, Harold MacDonald Scott Coxeter. But then just at the last moment, someone said that would make his, his initials HMS Coxeter. It sounds more like a ship than a baby. So they hurriedly <laughs> reversed them and uh, got it right. So, so by the mid-50s, Coxeter was really a well-known mathematician. Um, he'd 
born in, in, the, in the UK and he went to Cambridge and he was a senior wrangler there, which means he got the highest uh, marks on the maths exams that year, which is a very tricky thing to do. Um, but in 1936, when Escher was having his lovely trip to the Alhambra, Coxeter went to Toronto in Canada to take up a job and that's where he stayed uh, for the rest of his career, which was a very long career, as you can see. Um, I do particularly like one thing he said uh, in response to someone asking him, what's the point of this abstract, pure mathsy stuff? So there are various answers to that, which, you know, one does get asked this kind of question. One answer is, oh, well, you never know when it's going to be made useful. And, you know, there are lots of applications and we can't tell what they are. That's a perfectly valid and good answer. But the answer I prefer and the one he gave is to say, listen, um, actually, no one asks artists why they do what they do. I'm like any artist, it's just that the obsession that fills my mind is shapes and patterns. He's saying, listen, it's a creative thing. Poets are creative, artists are creative, writers are creative, mathematicians are creative. No one asks them why, so <laughs> don't ask me, right? <laughs> I, I like that response. Um, so, Coxeter then, uh, because he's an eminent mathematician, he travels in 1954 to the International Congress of Mathematicians, which that year was held in Amsterdam. Um, it's a conference that... <coughs> It's held every four years, so you know, it's like the Olympics of maths or something, but thousands of mathematicians go to this uh, every four years. It's where the Fields Medal is awarded, which is this, you know, the top prize in mathematics. Um, and to coincide with this, since it was in Amsterdam, there was a, an exhibition of Escher's work, and he had many of his uh, woodcut designs, lithographs there. There were some landscapes, but there were also lots of these regular divisions of the plane uh, diagrams, including diagrams, uh, pictures, including this one, Horseman, which is, oops, gone too far, uh, Horseman, which here it is, so you can see there's a, the red ones going in one direction, the white ones going the other direction, and then this one, so this is the relativity print that I mentioned earlier, and again, topic for, you know, another day, but there was another mathematician at the Congress, um, which was Roger Penrose, and he is famous for, well, among, he's also famous for some tilings, but that's not, they're not periodic, so let's not talk about those. But he's famous for Penrose triangles, right? And he got, I say, got the idea for it, but he was inspired by this picture um, to produce his Penrose triangles. And Escher and Penrose also had a, a correspondence and discussion over many years. So mathematicians attended this, uh, this conference. They went to the exhibition, Coxeter, um, that was there. His wife, uh, Reen, was Dutch and was able to chat with Escher in Dutch, which made a nice bond between them. And uh, he bought a couple of prints of Escher's work. And one or two years later, he, uh, Coxeter this is, was uh, chosen to be president of the Royal Society of Canada and he needed to give a presidential address. So he thought, I will talk about symmetry because that's the best thing in the world. And so he thought, to illustrate this, I want some nice pictures. He wrote to Escher and said, listen, can I use a couple of your pictures? So Horseman is one and one of Beatles um, just to illustrate these ideas. Escher said, yeah, that's fine. And so it came to pass. And that was in 57. He produced, Cox produced a transcript of the talk for the transactions of the Royal Society of Canada. And he sent it at some point in 1958. Mid-58, he sent it to Escher, just as a courtesy thing. And what I briefly showed you and then went back was the picture or one of the pictures in Coxeter's paper when Escher got it, he had a look through. Oh, yes, there's my stuff. Oh, what's this? And, and this was what he saw. So this is a figure seven of that paper. Um, and this looks like a tiling by triangles, but it's not something different about it. And this, you know, Escher thought, wow, this is interesting. This is opening up some new ideas for me. Um, and you can see, so see if you can spot the relationship between this picture that appeared in Cox's mathematical paper and this picture, which Escher produced uh, shortly after. So you can see perhaps the date on that, November 58. So he kind of got straight to work um, on this thing. And he produced uh, this, this tiling, which has got fish um, just fitting nicely together. And they appear to shrink as they reach the edge of the, the disc here. Well, they, I say appearing to shrink, you'll see why. Um, and you can see it's got the same kind of, it's got triangles in it, a bit like Coxter's diagram. Um, and this is what Escher produced. And he was very excited by this. And he wrote to Coxter and said, listen, I've seen this picture in your paper. I've made this. Tell me more kind of thing. Tell me what this is, uh, what I can do with it. Can you give me any help? Are there any other possibilities? And so on. So in order to, for us to explore this a bit, um, I need to tell you, what is this? 
what is this tiling? What, what universe is this happening in? And so to do that, let's have a, an interlude and talk about three geometries. So when we're at school, we study geometry, and probably not enough, and we study Euclidean geometry, the geometry of the plane. So uh, on a flat plane, we have things like between any two points, you can draw a straight line, I suppose a line segment to be precise. Uh, the angles in the triangle add up to 180 degrees, lots of circle theorems, and so on and so on. That's the geometry we, we learn at school. Uh, there's another kind of geometry, which you've already touched on today, and that's the geometry on the surface of a sphere. Um, and there, things are a little bit different. So here's a random sphere, and on it, I've drawn a triangle, uh, a spherical triangle. And you can see by uh, the to have picked out a quite extreme example of the angles in a triangle on a sphere not adding up to 180 degrees. There are three right angles in that triangle. So clearly, the geometry of a sphere is a bit different from the geometry of the plane. And how can this be? Because, you know, in Euclid, we prove that the angles in the triangle add up to 180 degrees. What's going on in the sphere? Well, as a pre-question, we got ahead of ourselves slightly because, hang on a minute, what is a triangle? Well, it's, it's, it's the shape you get when you... When, when bounded by three straight lines, right? Well, there are no straight lines on a sphere. It's a curved surface. So what even are, what are we talking about here? Um, well, to, to make a sensible answer to that question, kind of have to think, what do we mean? What is a straight line, really? What's the job it's doing for us? You could say it's something you draw with a straight edge, but that's sidestepping things a bit. Um, well, if you think about it, here are two points in, on the plane. Um, the straight line between them is just the shortest path between them. If you took a piece of string and threaded it uh, from one point to the other and then pulled it taut, the outcome would be the straight line between the two points. So if you take that as your definition, what, what's going to make sense um, on this curved surface, then what you get, and you probably know this if you've ever flown long haul, is you, know, you don't draw the map and then draw a straight line and then fly that. That would be ridiculous. You, 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 you travel on a curved path, which is actually a great circle, so like an equator, the circle of biggest diameter you can draw on the surface of that sphere. And those are the, the geodesics, the shortest paths. Um, and you, uh, you could check this if you have a large enough sphere and a big enough piece of string. You could, you could do this trick and, and check, and you really do find that the shortest paths between two points are these geodesics, the great circles. Um, and so that's what we have as our analogue of straight lines, these spherical lines then can make up triangles. And then you can see this example where the angles are adding up to greater than 180 degrees. So that, that you can already see that the geometry of a sphere is a bit different. But how can this be? Uh, well, just as an illustration of kind of what goes wrong, the, here is the proof that the angles on a, on a flat, on a triangle on the plane, add up to 180 degrees. And it's quite short. I'm sure we all remember doing this at school, but what you do is there's your triangle ABC, ABC, and you draw the line parallel to BC going through A. So that's what that line is at the top, it's parallel to BC. And then we happen to remember that if we have a, a diagonal line between those two parallels, then the angles on alternating sides, the alternating angles of that line, are equal. Alternating angles are equal. So the two green angles are equal, and the two blue angles are equal. I think they call them Z angles now. Schools they have no sense of poetry. Um, but, so, but so there we are. So the green angles are equal and the blue angles are equal. And then, of course, we say, well, at A, you've got a straight line there. Angles on a straight line add up to 180 degrees. So green plus red plus blue equals 180. Oh, but those are the angles in the triangle. So the angles in a triangle add up to 180 degrees. So that's all great. Um, on a sphere, that falls at the first step. Draw the line through A parallel to BC. There isn't such a line sphere because all, if you draw any two equators, any two great circles, they will always meet at two points. So that, that's why this does this falls apart straight away. Um, and it turns out on a sphere actually, the amount by which the sum of the angles in the triangle exceeds 180 degrees is proportional to the area of that triangle. Okay, so we saw one with an angle sum of 270. So, okay, so we've got two geometries now. In one, the angles in a triangle equal 180 degrees. In the sphere uh, version, the angles are greater than 180 degrees. So because I've set up this, uh, called this section three geometries, and set up for us a question which 
clearly needs answering, is there a geometry where the angles in a triangle add up to less than 180 degrees? And the answer is yes. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said <laughs> any of this stuff. Um, so let's show you how to make this thing. So you start with a cone. And we know when we slice through a cone, we get things like circles and ellipses and parabolas. Well, if you slice through at a big enough angle to catch both bits of the cone, um, you get the shape called a hyperbola. And so you, let's throw away the bottom half of this and just keep that top hyperbola. Um, and if you also, in your homes, there are hyperbolas. Uh, one example is if you have a standard lamp or something, then the light, the shape of the light that's thrown onto the wall is a hyperbola. So you can check that when you get home. Um, so we keep the top half of this hyperbola and then we spin it around its axis of symmetry. Spin it around and we get a solid of revolution called a hyperboloid. There it is, that's in green. Um, and in this geometry, so the geometry of the surface of this hyperboloid, the geodesics, the shortest paths, are hyperbolas. But that's a bit tricky to deal with. So what we do to try and understand a bit more, just like we do with maps of the world, we make a projection. So we project this hyperboloid down onto a flat disk, so a circle with radius 1. And when we do that, we find that as the hyperboloid sort of zooms off to infinity, it never crosses over this straight line here. And that means uh, as you approach the edge of the disk, you're zooming off to infinity. And the edge of the disk itself is infinity, so you never quite reach it. What happens to our hyperbolas, our geodesics, when they get projected onto this disk is that they become curves like this one. And uh, in particular, they become, there's three of them there, they become arcs of circles that cross the edge of the disk or meet the edge of the disk at right angles. And those are your paths of shortest distance. And this, this projection, this representation of hyperbolic space is called the Poincaré disk after Henri Poincaré. And you can see, maybe we can't quite see, you can estimate these out here as a hyperbolic triangle bounded by three hyperbolic lines. Um, I should say we can include the diameters of this circle in this. They're, they're the limiting case of hyperbolic lines. These three angles, the sum of those is less than 180 degrees. So in this, this is the third geometry where uh, hyperbolic geometry, where the angles of a triangle are add up to less than 180 degrees. Okay, so that's, that's kind of a very brief overview of, of what's going on and what this disk is, the representation of this hyperbolic geometry. Um, now, what Coxeter's diagram was, it showed a tiling, a hyperbolic tiling. You'll see that each of these triangles and the angle, so each of them is congruent. Right? So it doesn't look like they are, but that's because it's a projection. So, so lengths don't look like they're the same, just like a map of the world. Not everything is exactly the, looks like the same length as it is in, in, in the real world. By appearing to shrink, you can, these triangles are moving towards the, the edge of the disk, but in hyperbolic space, they, they are congruent to each other. Each of these triangles are congruent. All of these triangles are congruent. Um, the angles in these triangles are 90 degrees, 45 degrees, and 30 degrees. So if you add those up, that's less than 180. That means, though, because not all the angles are equal, these can't be equilateral triangles, even in the hyperbolic world. Um, so this isn't a regular tiling. Within a regular tiling, we require uh, regular polygons. So same angles, same lengths, same edges. However, I might be able to see it underlying this. I've sort of drawn round. Here's a regular hyperbolic hexagon. And there's another one not looking very hexagonal, but it is, um, with green around it. And then there's a yellow bordered one and a blue bordered one. And you can see that all four of those are meeting at this one point. So this underlying this tiling with not regular uh, triangles is a tiling by regular hexagons, four of them meeting at a point. So this is a four, six tiling uh, of hyperbolic space. Now, Escher wrote to Coxeter. He'd, he had used this original diagram with inspiration. He produced his picture with the, with the fish, black and white picture, but he wanted to learn more. He wanted to know, is there an easy way of calculating the centres of these circles, which these guys are arcs? Um, are there any other kinds of tilings that exist? And Coxeter wrote back, and they had a dialogue, and, and um, as a result of this, Escher produced more work. So this is his favourite of his circle limit pictures. Circle limit three, produced in 1959. And here, I mean, it's a much more intricate design. There are four colours to it rather than black and white. He's, Escher was pleased with some of these improvements he made, like that the fish are swimming along. There's more flow to it because 
and fish are swimming along in the same direction, they're not bumping into each other, and you've got all of these nice curves that the fish are swimming along. It was a lot of work, as he said. He wrote to his son, I've been killing myself for four days straight with clenched teeth to make another nine good prints of that highly painstaking circle boundary in colour, which, um, you know, there are like infinitely many fish. <laughs> that takes quite a while, and four different colours. Each print requires 20 impressions, five blocks, each block printing four times, and getting them all exactly overlaid so the colours exactly matching up. I mean, this is really hard, technically exacting work. And that's after you've made the design. Um, so he's pleased with this diagram, but one of the reasons I wanted to show it to you is because of the, the interaction the other way. So, of course, it is of course to me, and I'm sure to you too, there's a lot of mathematics in art. I mean, if you think of perspective or something like this, there is mathematics behind a lot of art, patterns, designs, and so on. The artist producing it may not necessarily be consciously aware of the geometry or the symmetry that they are producing. Some of them are, some of them aren't. And again, they may not be consciously aware of the mathematics behind it. You might be able to know the rules of perspective without understanding the mathematics behind them. Um, in this case, though, you know, Escher was, he was exploring. This is a mathematical paper he's got this work from, and he's having a discussion with a mathematician. So he's very mathematically aware. But also on the other side, Coxeter, um, he's getting something out of this too. Um, he wrote a mathematical paper about, about this, this uh, picture, circle limit three, and he said it gave him a new understanding of the hyperbolic disk. Um, so both sides were learning things. And often you can see the mathematics in something, but it's not new mathematics. It's not gonna, you're not going to write a, a, a new paper about it because it's a mathematics that's been known for many hundreds of years. In this case, Coxter said, you know, this, I'm really learning new things from it. Um, an instance of this, well, firstly, he noticed, there he is, sorry, with a picture of him, <laughs> looking very serious. <laughs> Um, so he noticed here, uh, firstly, that if you look at the places where the four fish fins are meeting, and I've drawn in a couple of these, actually nine of them, um, you'll see that around the central point, there are eight triangles. In the hyperbolic world, those are equilateral. You perhaps see that the angles all look right, but actually th this hyperbolic line is the same length as these two. These things appear to shrink as they get close to the boundary. So what Escher had found was a regular hyperbolic tiling with eight equilateral triangles meeting at a point. So that's eight, an eight-three tiling. So there was that, but also, Coxeter was very interested in these, uh, these white curves here. Now, initially, he had thought, if you look at them, remember hyperbolic lines are arcs of circles that meet the, the boundary at 90 degrees. Uh, and if you look at this one, well, it, it almost does, it's not quite... And Coxeter sort of said to himself, oh, well, you know, Escher's artistic license, and I yes, it's nearly right, but it's not quite, but never mind, sort of thing. Um, then you realise, no, these are, not, these are not hyperbolic lines, these curves. The ones made to produce the design of the fish, yes, but these curves that are prominent in the design are not hyperbolic lines. They're a different kind of curve. They're still arcs of circles, but they're not, because they don't meet the edge at right angles, they're not strictly hyperbolic lines. So what are they? Another interesting thing about them is that they are very cleverly introduced because you see these three here, if you look at the angles there, it's not necessarily obvious, but actually the angles that are made between these are all 60 degrees. So this is sort of a, a memory, an echo of a Euclidean equilateral triangle, which is impossible in hyperbolic space with real hyperbolic lines because the angles have to add up to less than 180 degrees. So it's very clever use with these curves. And Coxeter said, well, what actually are they? And he realized that what they were are something you could call equidistant curves. Um, so in Euclidean, the Euclidean world, we have, if you have a line um, and you draw a line parallel to it, the property, it has the property that the distance between those two lines is constant. Right? So the equidistant curve for a straight line in the Euclidean world would be a, parallel, a line parallel to your original line. Here in the hyperbolic world, um, that's not what we have. We have uh, this kind of scenario. So here in this picture, the red curve is a genuine hyperbolic line meeting the edge of the disk at right angles. And each of these blue lines is a curve that has the property that all the way along, um, it's equidistant in the hyperbolic world to equidistant from the original hyperbolic line. So those were the lines, these white lines that Escher create, had created, and Coxeter did some mathematics around these things and, and showed 
uh, some of their properties. So there really was an influence that went both ways. And their discussion and interactions carried on until Escher's death in 1972. And Cox was still writing about Escher's work for many years after that. Um, I wanted to show you uh, the third iteration of Angels and Devils. So this is called Heaven and Hell, made in 1960. And here we see again the Angels and Devils motif, but now in the hyperbolic uh, space. So we've got Angels and Devils on the Poincaré disk. So we've now seen it in all three geometries. When, uh, when Escher was working on these sort of designs, he would say to his long-suffering family, I'm just going to go to my workshop and do some coxetering now. Um, so this must be one of the few cases where you know, a mathematician's name is verbed in the world of art. Um, so he did his coxetering and, and he was very happy with it. Um, I just want to tell you briefly that you know, the, the great thing about this hyperbolic space, it gives you more regular tiling. So we've seen a couple already with eight equilateral triangles and with four hexagons. Um, are, there, are there more possibilities? And this is what Escher and Coxeter talked a lot about. Um, so just to remind you, we have this piece of notation, a KN regular tiling uh, is a tiling by regular n-gons uh, with K meeting at each vertex. Now, what are the possibilities for K and N that you could hope to imagine? Well, K and N must be at least three um, because K is the number of these things round a point. Well, if you only have two, it sort of flops onto itself. That won't work. So you've got to have at least three. And how many sides, the minimum number of sides a polygon can have, again, is at least three. You can't have a two-sided polygon because, again, it would collapse. It may be loons on a sphere, but, you know, essentially, no. So these must be at least three. So given that, what are the possible values that K and N can take? Um, and this amazing theorem that Coxeter explained to Escher um, is actually there's always a tiling, a regular tiling, for any choice of K and N as long as there are at least three. Um, and it happens in exactly one of the plane, the sphere, and the hyperbolic geometry. And the crucial number is a half, it turns out. So if, imagine if we had, I'll just put the next thing there. Say you want to do equilateral triangles. Um, so N is three, because that's your triangles. So if you have, say, four of them meeting at a point, so if you remember four equilateral triangles meeting at a point, that would give us an octahedron. Um, and, and sure enough, one over four plus one over three is, gosh, seven twelfths, right? That's bigger than a half. So this theorem correctly tells us that because one over k plus one over n is bigger than a half, we will get a regular spherical tiling. On the other hand, if we choose six equilateral triangles, so one over six plus one over three, a six plus a third is equal to a half, that means it's going to be a regular plane tiling. And that's exactly what we get. Six equilateral triangles around a point gives you a tiling. Anything else, any higher value of k, gives you a regular hyperbolic tiling. And there are infinitely many, therefore, regular hyperbolic tilings, even just with equilateral triangles, but infinitely many with any other uh, polygon. So we have infinitely many possibilities now. So this is great for Escher. He also solved the problem of representing uh, this infinite design in a finite bounded shape. So this kind of it solves all his problems, basically hyperbolic geometry, as it solves so many of our problems. Um, and this, this led him then to be able to do a lot more exploration of these, and we get these infinitely many tilings. So I thought I would leave you with just one of the infinitely many tilings, which is a tiling of regular pentagons, which you can't do on the plane, and it's four regular pentagons meeting at each point. And since we're a Gresham lecture, <laughs> I did the Gresham crest. Okay, thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.